Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Welcome, everyone. I'm Nicole, and I'm one of the pastors here. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, Tonight, we are kicking off a new sermon series entitled Age Old Retold, where for the next about two months, we are going to be taking a fresh look at some of the familiar stories and characters from the Old Testament with fresh eyes. So tonight, I'm going to be talking with you about Hannah and her long journey to parenthood. And then next week, the wrap-up of her story and the early years of her son, Samuel, who had quite the extraordinary life. So tonight I'm going to talk with you all about Hannah as an example of showing up to God exactly as you honestly are. But before we get into that, who is Hannah? For those of you who aren't familiar, she was a woman who lived several centuries before the birth of Jesus in the central mountains of Israel. And we're introduced to her in the book 1 Samuel in chapter 1 as the first wife in a polygamist marriage. Her husband, his other wife, was able to bear him children, many children, and Hannah was not able to. Jewish scholars guesstimate that her infertility lasted some 19 long years. And her husband married his second wife after 10 years of marriage. And that wasn't necessarily because he wanted to. It was because at the time, the law was that you had to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So if a marriage had not produced children after a decade, it was usually recommended that a man take a second wife. And in scripture, it's actually noted, I think twice, that Hannah was his favorite, which gave me a lot of empathy for his second wife. (laughs) I actually originally thought that I was going to give one sermon on Hannah and one sermon on his second wife, but There wasn't enough there. So his second wife, we have a little empathy for her, right? I mean, it's written down in the book of God that she was not her husband's favorite. And she taunted Hannah mercilessly about her inability to bear children year after year after year, especially when their family would all travel together each year to um, bring sacrificial offerings and prayer in the tabernacle at Shiloh which sounds like a really awful annual family trip, right? (laughs) Like it made it into scripture. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and how that taunting landed with Hannah. This is verse 7. This went on year after year. Every time Hannah went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. 
Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband, Elkanah, said, oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? So Hannah ate and she pulled herself together and she slipped away quietly and entered the sanctuary of God to pray. So like Hannah, I tend to lose my appetite when I'm stressed out. I think there's probably like two types of people in the world, right? There's stress eaters and there's stress non-eaters. <laughs> so I'm a stress non-eater, Hannah was a stress non-eater, and her husband notices this at their big sacrificial meal, which was quite the annual celebration, and he tries to comfort her. Scripture says that he gave her double portions of his big fancy sacrificial meal at the tabernacle, which is a nice gesture, but really not all that helpful if you have no appetite <laughs> or you feel a little pukey when you're stressed out. So her husband in scriptures also said that he sought to comfort her with words, right? He said, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? And then he says this, am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? The first time I read that piece of scripture, I, I, I stopped liking him, if I'm really honest, because I, I think that we've all had those situations where we've, like our emotions have gotten the better of us in a public setting, and we're trying to hold it together, and then this person comes along and really loudly asks if you're okay. Not really because they care, but because they wanna go on with their day and they want you to say, yeah, I'm fine, and they wanna move on. And then they center themselves in your stress, right? It's not all that helpful. So Hannah's husband did just that. He's like, hey, am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? Isn't my love enough to make up for the fact that you're not gonna be able to have children? Isn't my love enough to make up for the fact that you have to deal with this other mean girl wife of mine? <laughs> so I think Hannah in this situation did what she had to do, right? She's at this meal with her extended family that's supposed to be this beautiful celebratory time. And so she ate and she pulled herself together. And then she did something kind of beautiful and also kind of radical. She slipped away quietly into the sanctuary of God to pray. Now, you probably understand why I think that's beautiful, but why do I think it was a little bit radical? Well, at the time, Jewish law, under Jewish law, women were excused from several mitzvahs or obligations that men were held to. And one of those was prayer. Men at the time were obligated to pray three times a day, and women didn't have to. And some at the time would take that further, saying that because women were not obligated to pray, that they should not pray. And also, at the time, for men or women, most prayers went through a mediating priest. So a woman coming into the sanctuary of God alone, praying fervently and directly to God, would have been a bit of a radical act. So let's read on and happen, see what happens next. This is verse 11. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried and cried inconsolably. And then she made a vow, saying, O oh God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good, hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely and unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. 
So Hannah walks into the sanctuary and she sobs her heart out and she calls out to God by this name, O God of the angel armies, would you take a good hard look at my pain? <laughs> and at this moment, Hannah shows up to God as she honestly is. And what she honestly is, is 19 years worth of angry and impatient and empty and fed up and unconsoled. And she is done talking to God nicely. She says, excuse me, God, over here right now, I need you in this situation. So let's talk for a minute about coming to God as you honestly are, when what you honestly are is seriously pissed off or angry. Duke Divinity professor and author Kate Baller says that we should come to God with our honest grief and anger. She describes those feelings as a deep sadness, excuse me, as a deep sadness that reverberates through your soul. She says that we don't grieve in general. We grieve in particular, just like we love, right? We love in the details and we grieve also in the details. And sometimes, I think probably more than sometimes, the details that we grieve are simply our unmet expectations. Sometimes our grief is over not getting the outcome that we wanted or expected. And Kate says that it's important to not just come to God and count your blessings, but it's equally important to come to God and count your losses. Because we have to acknowledge what will never be before we can really begin to imagine what our future could be instead. And that when we don't take the time to honestly grieve the outcomes that we desperately wanted aren't going to come true, we can fall into what psychologists call identity foreclosure. Identity foreclosure is sort of a, a tunnel vision where we refuse to explore all of our options. As in, I'm only gonna accept this one outcome, therefore I'm not gonna consider any alternatives or any adjustments. And then when that singular outcome doesn't come true, where does that leave us? We're like forever stuck in a rut of not getting what we wanted. And so to avoid that rut, we have to come to God with an honest accounting of the losses. And in order to do that, we have to trust, right? We have to trust and believe in a God who's big enough to hold our true selves and hold our heavy things like grief and disappointment and anger. So a light and very privileged example of identity foreclosure that I'll share with y'all outside of Hannah's story was from my senior year in high school. Um, I know a lot of our seniors here in our community are making college decisions. So when I was a senior in the spring, I was hardcore pre-med at the time. Um, my intended career path was neurosurgery, which sounds really ambitious, but if you know my family's neurological history, it was really just a tribute to a wonderful doctor named Dennis Spencer, who was my real life superhero. And the singular outcome that I wanted was to go to one specific university and study under this neurosurgeon that he had recommended to me. I was so sure that this was my intended path, my God-given path. I had known this since I was 11 years old. And so to get there, I had worked really hard. I had given up a lot of things, and at the end of the day, I had all of the credentials in place to be able to get into the school, and I didn't have the money to go there. My parents were both public school teachers, and they were deeply supportive of me getting a college education, but the tuition at this particular school was just out of reach for them. 
And so about this time of year, um, this was back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and people got their college admissions in the regular mail. I got a big envelope. So the big envelope at the time was good news. I got a big envelope and I got into this school and I was on cloud nine, right? My singular outcome was starting to come true. And typically you would get a financial aid letter like two or three days later. So week goes by, no letter. Two weeks go by, no letter. So I called up the financial aid office and I said, hey, so I haven't gotten that yet, and um, could you just tell me the details of my financial aid package over the phone? And the woman said, sure, and she took my name, and she put me on hold. She came back and she said, I'm so sorry, we don't have a financial aid application on file for you. And uh, I am the type A human that I was back then, and I was like, um, I paid for signature receipt, and your name is on here. You signed for it on February 20th, so you have my financial aid application. And she said, okay, okay, I'll call you back. I'm not sure what happened. So a couple long hours later, she calls me back, and she says, I'm so sorry. Your folder with your financial aid application fell between my desk and the radiator. And I just found it. And I was 16 and a half and super naive, and I was like, no problem. You just take the next day, figure out my financial aid award, and call me back. And she said something that just broke me at the time. She said, well, we've already distributed all of our aid. So I hate to tell you this, you would have qualified for a full ride. But all we have is work study and loans, unless somebody turns us down and nobody turns that school down, and they didn't. So for the next two weeks, I showed up to God bitterly angry. I had worked so hard for that singular outcome, and I had done all the right things to get there, and it wasn't fair, and I wallowed in it until it was the evening before I needed to make a decision about where I was gonna to go to college. And I don't think my mother thought I was actually going to make a decision about where I was gonna to go to college, so she came to my room and she said, Nicole, it is time to work with what you've actually got here, which is not nothing. You have a couple great schools. They've offered you enough funding to go. You got what you needed. You just didn't get what you wanted. And it's okay to be angry about that. But now it is time to move forward and make something beautiful out of what you actually have. And it was good advice and I did but I never accepted that that whole thing was part of God's plan, as so many people in my church helpfully told me. <laughs> Here's what I learned about God's plan, though, from that experience, and that is that God's plan always includes a willingness to sit with me when I'm mourning and when I'm angry, and it always includes God's willingness to walk with me when I'm ready to move forward and make something beautiful out of what's actually in front of me. And I know that that story is like a highly privileged example in a world where lots of girls don't even get basic education, but it is where I learned a really valuable lesson, that coming to God to count my losses and set aside my expectations really, really did enable me to embrace the possibilities of what I actually had. So let's go back to Hannah, right? She shows up to God all angry, all hot and angry. She is counting her losses real clearly. That was not a problem for her. But then she starts to do something that I started to do with God at a very early age, bargaining. 
She says, if you'll just give me one baby, I'll give his life back to you completely and unreservedly in service. So can I, can I get a show of hands for anyone who's ever bargained with God? Like, if I could raise both of my hands without dropping the microphone, I would, because I have bargained with God in so many places, in children's hospitals, lying awake at night in hotel rooms across the street from children's hospitals, in pediatric surgery waiting rooms where I'm convinced that time is experienced differently, on small airplanes, in the shop Forever 21 while shopping with my teenage daughter, <laughs> and not, unlike Hannah, while I was waiting for my babies. And I wonder how God hears those deals that we try to cut with God. I mean, I know we're supposed to lean into the way that Jesus prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He didn't bargain, he did ask. He did come to God and say, look, I know everything is possible for you, and I would like you to take this hard thing from me but ultimately I, I want what you will, not what I will. But Jesus did come and pray to God about the desperate desires of his heart, but he kept the primary ask that the will of God take place in his life. And I'd like to say that I pray like that all the time, but my will definitely still seeps into my prayers. And that's what happens here with Hannah. She pours out the desires of her heart, before God and her will starts to seep in and she offers the bargain, right? Give me this one baby and I will give its life back to you in holy service. So do you think God accepts bargains? No. <laughs> I think it was his will all along for her to give birth to Samuel. And I think just because God sometimes appears to agree with the bargains we make, it doesn't mean that the outcome happens because we made the bargain. To quote my freshman year statistics professor, correlation and causation are not the same thing. So we go back to Hannah, right? She's crying and she's praying in the sanctuary and there was a priest keeping watch. This is verse 12. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli, the priest, was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her and he said, you're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. <laughs> That's actually what he said. <laughs> I just added that tone. <laughs> Hannah said, oh no, sir, please. I'm a woman brokenhearted. I haven't been drinking, not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart, pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here so long praying. Now I love this line. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart, pouring it out to God. And I also love that this beautiful and radical prayer that Hannah was making was one that she made in the silence of her own heart. Many of you here know that I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. There's lots of things I don't miss about the Roman Catholic Church, but I do miss a part of the Catholic liturgy called the intercessions. It was a call and response part of the service where a prayer recipient and their need is identified. Like, Bob is going to have heart surgery this Wednesday. Let us pray for his healing. And then everyone would pray together for that person. And they would close with a call for the prayers that each of us can only speak in the silence of our hearts. 
So what prayers do you speak only in the silence of your hearts? Because those are holy ground, friends. They are the truths that we don't have words for yet, but we're still seeking to be in conversation with God about. They're the prayers that we allow God in as our closest confidant. They're the conversations where we draw closer to God than to any person on this earth. It's holy, holy ground. And we all have things that we hold only between God and our hearts. You know what yours are. I know what mine are. Paula's super helpful editorial suggestion on my draft of this sermon was that I share a whole bunch of mine right here and right now. <laughs> but I think she was just being nosy. <laughs> e either way, God knows them all. And it reminds me when um, my now 17-year-old daughter was about three and she first grasped the idea of a secret. And she was just delighted by this concept that two people could hold a special piece of knowledge between themselves. And so like every day, she would come over and she would, she would say, shh, mom, I have a secret for you. And she would take my face in her sticky little hands and she would turn my head and she would whisper really loudly something that was not a secret at all. <laughs> like, my eyes are blue. I like turtles. And then she would put her forehead on mine real intensely and she would exhale and she would pat my cheeks and she would go off about her toddler day just delighted that, and relieved that she had shared this secret. And I think that, that how I felt when I would receive those secrets is probably a lot like how God feels when God comes to us with these prayers that we only speak in the silence of our heart, like none of it is a secret to God at all. But here we come with our sticky hands and our big buildup and our deep exhales. And God is just right there already knowing all the things, just reveling that we're finally pulling God in close. And so Hannah has just finished pouring out her secret heart to God. And she's embarrassed to have been found by the priest so upset, so upset that the priest thinks she's drunk. Let's read on. This is verse 16. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here for so long to pray. And Eli, the priest, answered her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Think well of me and pray for me, Hannah said, and then went her way. And then she ate heartily, her face radiant. And here's where Hannah teaches us that God can handle us leaving heavy things behind with him for a while. Hannah comes to God crushed. She cries and she cries and she pours out her secret heart to God. And then she leaves all the heaviness right there at his feet and she walks away to eat heartily, her face radiant. It is such a healthy thing to leave what's heavy with God when you cannot carry it any further. Then Hannah traveled home and scripture says that God began to make the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. And then in verse 20, we see that before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, explaining, I asked God for him. There's two parts of this verse that I want to touch, up, touch on as we wrap up. The first is that Hannah did not immediately conceive a child. God is not a genie in a bottle he did not snap his fingers and produce a baby for her, despite her desperate asks. And in my experience, this tracks 
100%. I remember praying for a baby, a lot like Hannah, a baby who would turn out to be my son Beck, who many of you know, some four years after I started praying for him. And my journey to becoming his parent looked not a thing like what I expected it to. But God was making the necessary arrangements in response to what I had asked for in God's time. And my God, if you've met my son, God's timing was well worth the wait. Sometimes God isn't ignoring our prayers. God's just making the necessary arrangements in God's time. And the second thing from this verse that I loved was the name that she gave the baby. She named the baby Samuel, which comes from the Hebrew phrase meaning God heard. And she explains the name saying, I asked God for him. I asked God for him and I named him God Heard, which is now what I would like to officially nickname Beck Vicky. You may from this point forward refer to him as God Heard Vicky. He's not gonna like that. <clears throat> Next week, I'm gonna talk more about how Hannah keeps her end of the bargain that she made with God and about Samuel's young life and the extraordinary beginning of it. But for now, I wanna leave you with a few points from this point in Hannah's story. And that's that when we show up to God, as we honestly are, then we can begin to see the possibilities that God actually has for us. So don't hold things back from God. You summon yourself our God of the angel armies, and you pour out your heart. You pour out the joy and the anguish, the gratefulness, the anger, the fury of your secret heart. And if you can do that without bargaining, if you can do that without expectation beyond an outcome of greater intimacy with your creator, even better. Just invite God in exactly as you are, and in doing so, invite God's will to shape your future. I think we can all have a little faith in the possibilities that a God of angel armies can build for us. And I know that sometimes we have to take that important step of setting aside our expectations first in order to find what lies in store for us ahead. And it is okay and good to grieve that something you wanted just isn't gonna work out. It's okay to break down the expectations that you have scaffolded around your life. Sometimes, without those scaffolds of expectations, you'll actually be able to see the beautiful possibility that God's been building for you all along. And lastly, I would just encourage you to listen gently to those prayers that you speak only in the silence of your heart, because those are, I mean, that, that is the voice of your truest self. And those vulnerable prayers, they allow you to pull yourself into a closer relationship with God and dwell in that holy ground that is just you and your creator who delights in you leaning in just as you are and is strong enough for you to leave behind some of your heavy things. Will you pray with me? Oh God of the angel armies, come on in. Take a good, hard look around at us exactly as we are exactly as you created us to be. Let us lay down our burdens and our bargains and our expectations at the feet of your will, that it may be what shapes our future for your good. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and 
filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. 